Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. I'm Jeannie Hureska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS, and I'm joined today in person by three of my ACS colleagues for our annual Supreme Court wrap-up. We'll be discussing a handful of the decisions that came down during this devastating and harmful and frustrating and add your favorite adjective here, Supreme Court term. Uh, with me today are Christopher Wright DeRocher, Vice President for Policy and Program. Hello, Jeannie. Hello, Christopher. Lindsay Langholz, Director for Policy and Program. Hello, Jeannie. Hey, Lindsay and Evan Manood, ACS Law Fellow. Hi, Jeannie. Hi. So all three of our guests are well known to our regular listeners, and I'm thrilled to have them here today. And again, we're recording from our office. It is super exciting to see everyone in person. And I do want to know if you missed Lindsay's episodes about Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health or the episode last week about the decisions in Carson and Kennedy, do go back and check those out. She will also be hosting next week's episode about the court's decision in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. All right, friends, let's get started. Welcome back to Broken Law. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We are going to go in order that the decisions uh, came down from the court, which has us starting off with New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. Really small, inconsequential case. Christopher, uh, you hosted a standalone episode about this case back in January, so I do want to encourage listeners to go back and check that out, which was episode 33. But we now have the decision. Christopher, talk to us about this case and where the court came down. Sure. So Bruin, for those people who have been living under a rock, is a Second Amendment challenge to a New York state law that requires folks to get a permit for uh, the concealed carry of a handgun. Um, in New York, open carry is illegal. So if you want to have a handgun, you have to get a concealed carry permit. Um, but in New York, under this regime, um, you need to demonstrate if you want to uh, have like a general use permit, you need to demonstrate that you have an actual tangible threat to your safety for you to be justified to, to carry it. And the Supreme Court in this case determined that uh, New York's law was in fact unconstitutional in a decision that was written by Justice Thomas and joined by all five of the other conservative justices, um, the court decided that um, this type of regime that provides uh, some discretion to the issuing authority in a state actually violates the Second Amendment right to carry a firearm in public. Frustrating as this decision was, it was not unexpected. No, I think that uh, folks expected that this was going to be the outcome. Um, I think that, you know, uh, partially uh, the, the the concern was what the decision would actually say, how far reaching it was. Um, and unfortunately, I think it was about as bad as you could imagine. Which seems to be a common thread uh, this season, since I recall that being said about Dobbs as well. It absolutely was. And I, I think there are a few reasons why it was so bad. And I think put most simply, um, Justice Thomas's opinion basically said that the only way that you can evaluate um, a law that regulates firearms 
is based on history. His interpretation of history. A very cramped reading of history. I, I think that's the, the hardest thing. And there's sort of a, a laughable line in, the, in the, the opinion itself where Justice Thomas attacks um, the, the sort of two-step process that has developed over the past decade that basically every circuit court that's considered a gun regulation has used. And the two-step process is to first look at the text and the history and tradition of the Second Amendment. And then um, if they determine that there is some sort of burden on a Second Amendment right, to then look at what's called a means end test. Basically, what's the what's the government doing? Like what is the particular state or federal government doing to, you know, to regulate guns? And is it sort of closely related to what their goal is? So it would be, you know, are they regulating Assault rifles, because assault rifles present like a, an incredible danger because of the amount of, you know, uh, they can fire in a, in a short amount of time. Uh, Justice Thomas said, no, you cannot use the means end test. There is a one step test for evaluating um, a Second Amendment burden, and that is text, history and tradition. And then he went on to say that judges are not very well equipped to do a means end test, that's too difficult for them, even though we use means end testing in pretty much all evaluation of equal protection claims, um, substantive due process claims. It's a very, it's constitutional law is sort of like based largely over the past um, half century or more on means end testing. Um, but Justice Thomas says, no, judges aren't good at that. But what he does think judges are good at is historical analysis. He thinks that judges as armchair historians are going to be able to evaluate um, whether um, there's sort of analogous historical precedent for modern day gun laws. It sounds like reasoning by convenience. I mean, it, it is. And I think the, the, the next step in his opinion really demonstrates that because Look, the, the, the folks who defended the law for New York, New York knew the court that they were arguing in front of. They knew what these justices' approach was going to be, that they were really going to rely on some historical analysis. Because, you know, the, the text part is sort of a done deal in Heller, um, which was decided in 2008, um, an opinion by uh, Justice Scalia. That was a case in which Justice Scalia said the Second Amendment text, in addition to history and tradition, clearly says that there is an individual right to have a firearm in your home. Um, and that was the first time that the court had ever acknowledged an individual right to bear arms, despite the fact that the, you know, anyone who knows the text of the amendment, it goes on to talk about a well-regulated militia, but the court just read that out of the the, the amendment. So now that's sort of a done deal. Like the text is what Scalia said it was. Thomas sort of assumes that he's right in his decision. And then he goes on to evaluate the the extensive historical record that uh, the folks who were defending the New York law put forth. And basically cherry picked <laughs> I mean, version so of history. I, you know, I would say that he so he dismisses all of this historical evidence as either too old too new, too inapplicable, or too few. So, and what I mean by that, he's like, he's like, well, you know, some of the historical precedent they raise is they from meaning like, state of New York. The state of New York is from the the twelfth century, so that's inapplicable. Even though you know New York was trying to establish that there is like a long tradition of sort of 
regulating firearms. Um, and he's like, and it's, you know, we're talking about English common law and, you know, we're America, so we don't consider English common law, even though, uh, you know, that was talked about extensively in previous Second Amendment cases, including Heller. Um he just dismisses that as inapplicable. Then he talks about um, a couple of regulations that existed at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment. And he's like, well, but there are only a couple of those. So those don't really count. I think he's like, there were like three of them. So it doesn't matter. Like, that's not. It must be nice to be Justice Thomas. I mean, you know, essentially. And then another one that uh, some additional historical precedent that occurred during the Reconstruction and then later in the, the 18th century. He's like, but that was like way too old. Like that was that's way too new. And it doesn't matter that these types types of regulations have existed for a century, a century and a half in this country, he says that that's inapplicable. Um, and so it really demonstrates why using his one-step text history and tradition model is really just a recipe for judges deciding what they want. It's a recipe for personal opinion. Exactly. And, and I mean... Beyond the fact that it assumes that history is easy and that anyone can do it, especially people who are completely untrained in historical analysis um, or evaluation, it it basically just provides no clear guidance on what actually is and is not a violation of the Second Amendment as this court sees it. I'm assuming the dissent uh, had issue with this. They did. And the interesting thing about the dissent that was very different from the the majority opinion, the dissent was joined by um, all three. It was written by uh, Justice Breyer, um, Kagan, Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor joined the dissent. It opens by actually addressing modern day gun violence. Um, the, the first sentence in the dissent is in 2020, 45,222 Americans were killed by firearms. Um, and then it noted that as of the date that this opinion was released, there had been 277 mass shootings in this year alone. So the dissent really sort of acknowledges the reality of gun violence in the country, whereas the the majority and I hesitate to to, to use this. It's sort of a too often used phrase, but essentially they're. Their attitude is we are in a suicide pact with the Second Amendment. It does not matter. No, no government can now determine what its needs are in terms of preventing gun, gun violence. It can only rely on what existed in a moment in time that Justice Thomas and the five other conservative justices decided and also what the laws at that time actually meant, which are really, you know, as you can imagine, you know, we're talking like ball and musket error um, firearms. Like what kind of analogies can you draw between that and an AK-47? What, you know, what kind of analogies can you draw between that and, you know, a large capacity handgun? The analogies, I think, to any reasonable person seem pretty inapplicable, um, but that's sort of what we're left with. I'm afraid to ask this uh, because I think we're heading towards some very, very dark days when it comes to gun precedent. But given this decision, where do you think we're going next? So, you know, there is still some hope. Um, I, that is a you, dangerous word right uh, now. You know, I'm, I'm an optimistic guy. 
I, what can I say? I, <laughs> I am who I am. Christopher is very much a ray of sunshine. It's true. It's true. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, another one of the arguments that that Thomas struck down was that part of the the New York regime was about protecting gun availability or presence in sensitive places like and schools and say the court. The court, yes. He, and in fact, both uh, Justice Thomas and in a concur- concurring opinion by Kavanaugh joined by Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, they explicitly identified courthouses as one traditionally sensitive place. Now, New York had tried to use, um, and I think, you know, I, I think it's sort of a, a plausible argument. Um, New York had tried to use the argument that, you know, a sensitive place is a place that where a lot of People like the general public congregates um, a place where law enforcement or other security personnel are present to maintain public safety and where the presence of a gun would create sort of a safety hazard and also like create like panic uh, if people knew that there was a a firearm present Um, to say that places like New York City, literally that city, like should be. A place where you you shouldn't just like automatically be able to um, conceal carry a, a gun. And Justice Thomas dismissed that. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's pretty easy to be like, that's ridiculous. You can't claim that the entire island of Manhattan is, Justice Thomas said, is a sensitive place. But, you know, really, if you've ever been to the island of Manhattan, it's crowded and it's bustling and the presence of a firearm would be really dangerous. But, you know, in response to that and in response to the decision, actually like four days after the decision um, came down, New York actually passed um, some pretty expansive gun regulations regarding sensitive places. They, you know, one of the things that they did, that they said was, you know, private businesses are now presumed to be gun-free zones unless the business affirmatively says you can bring your gun in. Um, bars and restaurants are now gun So an opt-out. It's an opt-out, right. Um, and, you know, obviously like schools and government buildings, um, you know, polling sites, um, places of worship, any place that serves alcohol, medical facilities. Um, so this is the new, this is the next frontier, you think? We're, this yes, is gonna it's like get litigated. sort of really identifying um, what sensitive places are specifically in a, in a specific way, but where they apply broadly. Um, and the other thing is that New York just didn't sort of like accept that they now needed to issue concealed carry permits to anybody who asked. One of the objections that um, the court had to New York's regime is that it, it allowed a lot of discretion, um, or at least that's what they assumed. There was actually like no record developed. This was all like decided on pleadings. Um, but the court assumed that there was like too much discretion by the authorities that granted these licenses. So what New York did in in revising its law is it took that discretion away. So it said, not only if you were, you know, convicted of a crime, but if you were like charged with a crime of violence and, you know, there, um, if, you know, if you have like a misdemeanor conviction, um, that could disqualify you from getting a concealed carry permit um, if you have um, past substance abuse um, problems. So they really they're they're trying to find a way to like work within what Thomas gave them to continue to sort of regulate. It sounds like the state of New York could find itself uh, before the Supreme Court again. 
They could, and I think that they will. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. Um, no, it sounds right? almost like they're doing it intentionally. Right, but you can't. You but you don't want to sort of like fall down and yeah. say there's nothing we can do. And I think you know I, the other thing I would note related to that to, to continuing um, litigation and the thing that's really sort of like immediately concerning um there were a few cases um that were pending that the court remanded um for reconsideration that were um involved bans on large capacity magazines so new jersey and california both had bans on large capacity magazines um that uh appellate that circuit courts had upheld and the supreme court was like mm, you need to like reconsider these in light in light of bruin and so it could have like much more far reaching um effects than you know what were what was just in the four corners of the case so stay tuned we will be keeping our eye uh on what happens next in terms of gun litigation and we will probably be discussing it again on this podcast probably this year uh but christopher on the same day that bruin was decided the court also handed down its decision in vega can you tell us about that case Sure. So Vega involves the uh, right to be Mirandized. Anyone who's ever watched any like police procedural or like anything, TJ Hooker or whatever. Law and Order, single episode. TJ Hooker? Uh, you know, Sorry, I'm... I don't get that reference. <laughs> Choose your generation William and Shatner. there's a oh, show of relevance. Um, I do know who William Shatner is. He was, he was TJ Hooker. Okay. Um, right. For the youngins. Um, so... You know, anyone knows that, you know, the Miranda warning, you have the right, right to remain silent, but anything you say can will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. Um, so, you know, part of what the Miranda right does or the the Miranda warning, I should say, is it lets folks know that they have a constitutional right under the Fifth Amendment um, against self-incrimination. Um, and Miranda was a case that was decided in 1966, and the court sort of decided that this Miranda warning was necessary so that folks knew that they had this right. Because otherwise, if, you know, an ordinary person walking down the street who's, you know, detained by the police doesn't know that they have the right not to speak to the police, could, like, give up the game... And, you know, find themselves um, prosecuted. And that just doesn't seem fair. Right. So this was a, you know, a way of sort of actualizing that constitutional right. Um, so Teco was a uh, certified nursing assistant in L.A. Medical Center who was accused of sexual assault. He was uh, interviewed by a police officer, um, was never Mirandized. He was then prosecuted and a jury acquitted him. Um, the uh, His statement uh, incriminating himself was allowed in his trial, but he was, again, he was acquitted. And then he turned around and he sued under um, what's Section 1983, which is basically uh, federal civil rights statute um, that allows someone whose federal constitutional or legal rights were violated to sue for uh, money damages. Um, and so he sued because, you know, given the fact that he was acquitted, that was sort of the only remedy. The other remedy for um, statements that come in um, without a Miranda warning is suppression, basically not um, being used in the court. But in this case, because he was acquitted, there was sort of no appeal necessary to try to get that statement thrown out in a future prosecution. So he sued under 1983. And the question before the court was... Can you use the failure to be Mirandized as a basis for um, a 1983 suit? Um, and the court said no. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of reporting around this was like, you know, Miranda has like is under attack or Miranda, you know, has sort of lost its, you know, enforcement mechanisms. And that's not quite the case. Like you can still throw out a Miranda statement that uh, or a statement um, that incriminates someone if they haven't been Mirandized. Um, but you cannot sue for, uh, for a violation of your constitutional rights or legal rights. Which does undermine the notion of Miranda if it's a right that you can't actually do anything about when you when it's not recognized. Exactly. I mean, it assumes that there's sort of number one, there's there's more damage than just being criminally convicted, like having to go through a trial, having to, you know, you know, if you're if there's you're paying an attorney, harm. there's reputational I mean, there's harm, there's all sorts of harms. Um, and the court um, in a, again, a 6-3 decision written by Justice Alito this time, um, the court said, yes, Miranda is designed to protect your Fifth Amendment constitutional right, but it is not itself a constitutional right. They they sort of like engaged in this very circular logic because there had actually been a case in 2000 where Congress had tried to like abrogate the Miranda right, basically pass a law that says like you can still, you know, use a statement. And the court was like, no, 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 this is a constitutional rule. You can't like there's nothing you can do here but this court was sort of like yeah but that that doesn't make it a constitutional right itself it's prophylactic it's supposed to like protect um a, a constitutional right it's not a constitutional right itself and so they sort of in this very like double speak circular logic sort of way where like the miranda rule is not a constitutional right but um, if you sort of noticed earlier, I said that Section 1983 can be used to protect both constitutional and legal rights. So it doesn't need to be a constitutional right. Uh, a legal right um, also applies. And that includes sort of rights that have been granted by courts. Like it doesn't ne necessarily have to be codified or, or a statutory right. Um, and so in order to sort of dispatch with that, uh, the court basically was basically said, yeah, but – you know, these kinds of suits, they, they, they don't do much and they wouldn't do much to, you know, dissuade a bad actor who was not, who was going to fail to Mirandize someone. So really, we don't need to we don't need to worry about that. Concerned about what this case could mean for Miranda going forward? I think it's, you know, a shot across the bow. Um, there's there is at least uh, one justice, Justice Thomas, who does not believe that uh, Miranda is a legitimate decision. Um, and I think that this is certainly a suggestion, um, given how uh, dismissive the court was about the value of Miranda and what Miranda actually means. Um, they, Justice Alito's opinion didn't seem poised to overrule Miranda. Um, but it certainly it was not door. a it was not an open throat like uh, yeah. message of support either. So um, it's certainly something we need to be watching oh. out for. There was one other criminal legal related case uh, that I want to make sure we touch upon, and that's Shin v. Ramirez. Can you fill us in on that one? Sure. So Shin v. Ramirez is actually um, two cases, uh, two men who are currently on the Arizona death row. Um, facing execution, um, both who are claiming ineffective assistance of counsel um, at their uh, at their at their trials, and in a case in 2012 called Martinez, um, the court had said that in a case of ineffective assistance of counsel 
at trial in Arizona, where you're only able to raise that claim, um, not in your direct appeal, which is like the appeal of right, but in what's called a post-conviction appeal, which is sort of like it's the state analog of federal habeas. Um, In those situations where that's your first chance to raise ineffective assistance of counsel, if you also have ineffective assistance of counsel at that stage, at that post-conviction stage. With a different lawyer, so you have another ineffective lawyer. Right, right. You would, where you would ordinarily be barred from raising that claim in federal court, they basically made an exception saying like, no, you can raise the claim even though it was never raised um, at the the appellate level or in post-conviction proceedings where that would normally like what's called procedurally default you from raising it in federal court. Um, the court in Martinez in 2012 said, we're, we're going to make an exception because that just doesn't seem fair. In uh, Shin v. Ramirez, what the court essentially said was, you can raise that claim, but we're not going to allow a federal court to give you the opportunity to develop evidence that that claim is true. Um, so you can imagine if you had a bad lawyer at the trial, if you had a bad lawyer in your appeal, if you had a bad lawyer in your post-conviction stage, they probably weren't developing the evidence that would establish that they had done a bad job at lawyering. Um, and so the federal court, the Supreme Court saying that a federal court couldn't then give you the opportunity to develop that evidence is basically making... You can raise it, but you can't... Right. It's, it's it. making Martinez a, a dead letter. You have a right with literally no remedy. Um, and that, you know, it's it's disconcerting because it's taking what was a huge victory um, in 2012 and removing almost all all value of that of that victory for in terms of like Sixth Amendment right to counsel and right to effective counsel. Am I right in thinking that if, if we think of these two cases going together, they they fall in line with kind of where this conservative supermajority has been moving in terms of, of criminal legal issues. You know, it's it's interesting because there have been some Fourth Amendment um, decisions in the past um, few years that have actually been, like, not bad, pretty good. Um, uh, there's a question of why some of the conservatives are supportive of that. I mean, but there's certainly, like, this idea of, like, government overreach and, you know, you know your, your Fourth Amendment right to... to should be free from unlawful search and seizure. Um, so there's, you know, a libertarian or conservative strain that sort of like is, you know, wants to protect those. And we're talking about like big data issues and like, uh, you know, access to like what's on your cell phone or like the ability to put a tracker on somebody's car without a warrant. Or, you know, there was a case where like somebody got shot last in a, a case last year where like someone was shot and then fled. So they never actually like got hands on the person and the court was like, well, that's still a seizure. Like you can't like shoot somebody unlawfully and then just get away with it. Like that's a problem. But I think, you know, in other areas, you're really seeing some like concerning, um, you know, trends. And I would say, I would mention also um, with regard to those uh, section 1983 civil rights claims, there were like a number of cases that were decided on the shadow docket this year regarding um, qualified immunity, which I know is a, a sort of a hot topic sort of nationally and sort of like in, in the general public, um, qualified immunity sort of like protects um, police and other state actors from liability, even 
even if they've done what they even if what they did was wrong um and the court sort of made these decisions with no record um no sort of argument just sort of based on briefings and, and said like, nope, qualified immunity for this guy, qualified immunity for that guy. And that's disconcerting because I think that there's, you know, there was hope that the court would actually really seriously reevaluate this judge made, you know, rule about qualified immunity. Um, but they seem to be doubling down on it. And that, you know, especially when they don't talking- like so-called court made rights in some instances, but funny how they like them in others. Uh, yes, I think um, <laughs> intellectual or like principled consistency uh, is not the watchword for um, the court uh, right now. If I were to be so bold as to be bold, Christopher, be bold. You are listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization committed to protecting our democratic legitimacy and supporting laws and legal systems that improve the lives of all people. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. Our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By joining ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, our advocacy in support of Supreme Court reform, and truth, racial healing, and transformation information, and so much more. You also become a member of our nationwide network, which includes over 250 student and lawyer chapters. Join ACS and the progressive legal movement today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. We are just having a super uplifting conversation so far. Uh, Evan, I'm going to turn to you now. Sure. Uh, the court handed... To continue the uplift. Yeah, exactly. Evan, the court handed down its much-anticipated decision in Texas v. Biden on the very last day of session. Those are always the best times to do that on the, as they're on their way out the door. Indeed, you have to wonder why it was saved till the very last, but here we go. What is this case about? Sure. Uh, so this case is about uh, the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP, uh, that's also referred to as the Remain in Mexico policy. And essentially, this policy was uh, adopted by the Trump administration back in the before times of 2018, which feel like forever ago. And essentially, what those uh, what that policy did was it required. Uh, asylum seekers who are looking for asylum in the United States to stay on the Mexico side of the border while their asylum claims are being processed. So essentially what this did is it created uh, just a huge class of people who are stuck on the Mexico side of the border in incredibly dilapidated and horrible conditions while they wait for their asylum claims to be processed. How did, yeah, well, no need to hold off anticipation here. No. What was the decision? So the decision kind of, there are two parts to this decision. It's a 5-4 decision. So a rare 5-4 decision these days with the three liberals and uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh in the majority. And um, essentially there are two parts here that are worth talking about. The first is a procedural part Essentially, uh, whether the lower court in Texas could enjoin the Biden administration from ending the migrant protection protocols at all. 
And the second part was whether they were allowed to rescind it under the Immigration and Nationality Act or whether they were required to keep it. So on the procedural point, uh, following another decision from this term called uh, Garland v. Alman Gonzalez, Chief Justice Roberts, in the majority opinion, said that, yes, it's true that district courts can't enjoin uh, certain enforcement of immigration laws, but the Supreme Court is specifically allowed to hear uh, and issue those injunctions. So because the Supreme Court is specifically allowed to do that, they were allowed to hear this case here. And then when they turned to the merits, uh, Chief Justice Roberts looked at the text, the relevant text of the statute. They're just burning for textualism. We love textualism, except when we don't. Preview of coming attractions. And um, the relevant portion of the statute says that the uh, federal government may return asylum seekers to either Mexico or Canada, basically to a, conti- a contiguous part of North America. But that does not say shall. And of course, any first-year law student will know that when a statute says may, that's discretionary. When a statute says shall, that is mandatory. Because it says may, in this case, the court reasoned, uh, and I think quite rightly, that this is a discretionary policy. So uh, the Biden administration is not required to send folks back to Mexico, and they can, in fact, either choose to detain them or they can choose to parole them back out into the United States. So a good decision. Is that fair to say? Yeah, sort of. Um, there's always a qualifier with this court. Uh, and the qualifications are two here. Um, the first is that in uh, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, he kind of laments the fact that Congress has never given enough money to uh, detain everybody, right? And no president, including Trump, has sent everybody back to Mexico. So he's sort of saying, well, we're going to allow this, but... I don't, I, Justice Kavanaugh, don't like that we haven't given a lot of money to forcibly detain everybody who tries to come to the United States. So there's that issue there. The other issue is that they remanded it back to the Texas District Court. And where all good things happen. Where all good things happen. Shout out. Not. No, yeah. Not so much. It's almost like they're forum shopping to get. I'm shocked. I know. I, I'm sorry to shock you in this way, Jeannie, but it's, it's really true. Uh, so they did remand it back to the district court saying, okay, you can't require them to enact this policy, which by the way would also mean that this Trump judge is essentially taking control of U.S. foreign policy because you have to negotiate with Mexico in order to enact this policy at all. Uh, so you can't Trump judge, uh, enact U.S. foreign policy, but you should still evaluate the rescission to see whether it met the parameters of the Administrative Procedure Act. So essentially, the uh, Trump judge gets another crack at it, and it's all too likely that we'll probably... So the last chapter of this case has not been written. Oh, absolutely not. I fully expect it to, um, you know, wind through the gears until we we, um, hit it again. Yeah. 
Looking forward to that. So uh, much fun. I do want to note uh, that Evan hosted an earlier episode this year about immigration more broadly, and listeners should go back and check that out if they have not already. It is episode 43. So, Evan, we're going to turn to now one of the similarly highly anticipated cases of the term uh, and just everybody strap yourselves in this is it's only the fate of the planet Gene. yeah it's just, just minor details that we're going to be discussing here uh obviously this case is west virginia v epa uh we also previewed this case earlier this season i want to know uh which is episode 38 so again if folks want to go back and get some of the background uh, on these cases do go back and check out the earlier episodes that we are flagging all right evan remind us what this one is about sure so again this is another 6-3 with chief justice roberts writing the majority and justice kagan writing and frankly an excellent dissent for as much as that is worth uh, these days. Um, so the court ruled 6-3 that the EPA cannot have broad powers to uh, regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act. Um, you know, some listeners might remember way, way back in 2007, uh, the court decided a case called Massachusetts BEPA, where it said uh, greenhouse gases are a pollutant, and EPA can regulate it as a pollutant. So following on from that decision in 2015, the Obama administration issued what it called the Clean Power Plan, which essentially required states to hit certain emissions targets by 2030. What's really interesting about the procedural history of this case, which I know is just the most fascinating and sexy it's thing. It's why we're here. It's why we're here. It's, a, it's just the most interesting thing that any lawyer can say. We love procedure. The Clean Power Plan has never existed. It has never been enforced because in, uh, so the Obama administration issues it in 2015. In 2016, the Supreme Court did something that it has never really done before and issued an injunction to enjoin the clean power plan from ever coming into force. And then uh, in 2019, the Trump administration repealed the clean power plan. So the clean power plan has never existed. So you may and be- And usually that makes a case moot. It usually means there's no Article 3 case or controversy. That's right. And yet, here we are. Here we are at the highest court of the at land. At the highest court in the land. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, in deciding that issue, basically said, well, because of the Biden administration vigorously defends the Obama-era EPA's approach, that means that the court can weigh in. Because if this allegedly illegal action is apt to occur again, we can we can weigh in, which, you know, flies in the face of pretty much every um, standing doctrine that we have because there's no concrete injury here. West Virginia never had to do a thing, right? These coal companies never had to do a thing. And yet here we are. So in turning to the merits, the majority ultimately invoked what's called the major questions doctrine, uh, which is really only a thing that's been around since about 2015. And it essentially says that um, 
Congress, in giving an executive agency the power to regulate something, needs to do it in a very clear way. If it doesn't do it in a very clear way, then a court like the Supreme Court can say, well, that's a major question. That seems like too big for them. For an agency to for an agency figure out on its own without do. more congressional right. guidance. Except without more congressional guidance. So basically, Chief Justice Roberts and the majority say, well, you know, this statute, the Clean Air Act, which, you know, lest we forget, was uh, passed and signed under Richard Nixon, of all people, Um the Clean Air Act, this just seems too big. It seems too big to, for the EPA to say to power plants, you have to hit certain emissions targets by 2030. And more specifically, you have to do it by shifting from coal and um, other pollutants, other fuels that cause pollutants, to solar, wind, natural gas, etc. This just seems too big. And because it seems too big, we're going to say that you can't do it. So this case sounds like we're talking about one statute, but really this case is about the Supreme Court waging war on the administrative state. Yes. Is that fair to say? I think that's entirely um, fair to say. What I always find sort of ironic about this is that Justice Gorsuch's mother used to run the EPA, and now he's, you know, on the vanguard of destroying the administrative state. So I don't know if there's like an Oedipal thing there or what's going on, but I've always thought that's a little bit of a weird coincidence. Um, They're absolutely going to take a hatchet to the administrative state because they believe it shouldn't exist. And they're going to do that in a way that aggrandizes their own power. You know, when they do eventually take a hatchet to that administrative state, they're going to use a lot of the same rhetoric that they did in the Dobbs decision, right? They're going to say, oh, we're just returning this power to the people's elected officials. To Congress that is proving unable to do much of anything. And they know that. Yeah. And they, they know full well that con- yeah. they're just going to say, well, Congress should have said something. Or Congress can. If they don't like this, they can just pass a piece of legislation and right. fix well, it. And no like, problem. when is that ever going to happen? Yeah. Right? And and as um, Justice Kagan really eloquently points out in her dissent, you know, Congress does this. Congress grants broad authority to do things because it knows what it doesn't know. Right. It knows that um, it doesn't have the power to foresee all uh, implications of a given statute. But we want to make sure that we have clean air and clean water and a planet to live on uh, for time immemorial. Right. And um, so the fact that Congress gives these broad delegations is not a bad thing. And it's, in fact, what we should expect from our um, national legislature. The other thing that's worth pointing out about Justice Kagan's dissent, too, is that she really laments kind of the cherry-picking use of textualism, right? So the part of the statute at issue here says that it says two things. It says that the EPA can regulate pollutants, and it can do so um, in the best in the best possible way. And it's up to the EPA to determine what that best possible way is. Full stop. That's what Congress said. If the text means anything, 
it means that we should let the EPA do its job. And at the very end, she brings up how uh, at her confirmation, she famously said, we're all textualists now. Uh, and she sort of laments how uh, the majority in ignoring the plain text of the Clean Air Act uh, is textualist only when being so suits it. And when being so gets in the way of, quote, broader goals, like, for example, destroying the administrative state and the EPA, they're not going to let a little thing like textualism stop them from doing that. Um, so it's really a hard-hitting dissent from someone who's traditionally been sort of seen as the more conciliatory of the um, liberal justices. Yeah, this is a sweeping decision, if there was one. If you read the news after this story came out, there was much discussion about whether the United States can even meet environmental goals now um, yeah. if our executive agencies can't regulate. It's hard to know how we counter climate change other than, yeah. you know, the sheer hope, hope and will open a prayer that corporations will just decide to be responsible. Right. And, 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 you know, if there's one kind of nugget of hope here, we of, need hope. We need as much hope as we can get because <laughs> it's in very short supply. Um, the one nugget is that the sort of ironic thing about this is that all of the emissions targets that the clean power plan would have put into effect had it been able to go into effect have already been exceeded, right? That's encouraging. So, so the, the uh, industry by, you know, sheer force of the market, hey, conservatives, we love the market, right? By sheer force of the market, they have realized, oh, it's cheaper and more efficient to meet these standards and, in fact, to exceed them because that's that's where you know the, the wind is blowing. The wind is blowing towards a wind turbine, shall we say? Yeah, but we should also know this isn't. I mean, this is going to have devastating impacts for devastating the EPA, impacts. but also for other executive agencies. So you know, public health, a for small issue right now. Right. We could also see the federal government's ability to respond to epidemics. Right. And we have, we've already seen that. I mean, we've already seen, um, you know, the Supreme Court knock down the, the CDC's eviction moratorium on very similar grounds, basically invoking this major questions doctrine to say, well, it's not the CDC's job to put in an eviction moratorium. So we're not going to let them do that. We've seen lower courts, you know, including the arch conservative Fifth Circuit, kind of take a cue from the Supreme Court and say, well, can the CDC really put in anything? Can it even put in a lockdown order? Uh, can it even really, you know, do anything to affect public health? Because that seems like a big thing for the Centers for Disease Control to be able to do. I mean, it's in the name. Yeah, it, it's scary. The Supreme Court really just seems so power hungry right now. It is gladly announcing that it is the most powerful branch of government. Absolutely. And and um, it's funny because I uh, was reading uh, an earlier case uh, about disability law recently. And that case, uh, the dissent by Justice Breyer quoted an earlier decision from the 1970s where it said, uh, this court should not act as a super legislature. 
right? This court should not act as uh, a super legislature designed to obstruct what Congress and uh, our elected representatives are trying to do. And that humility is very much in short supply these days. If not completely Completely gone. Right. Exactly. Okay. Lindsay, (laughs) speaking of super legislatures. (laughs) Oh, God. This is such an upper episode. So in addition to the cases um, in which the Supreme Court heard oral arguments and issued written decisions and kind of the regular course of things, they also issued a number of consequential decisions via the shadow docket. Can we talk about how the court has specifically used the shadow docket this term? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one area of the the court has been active on the shadow docket. I know Christopher referenced it earlier, um, but but another area that it's been really doing a lot of work has been um, the court's response to gerrymandering claims. Uh, folks may remember that after the 2020 census was conducted, um, state legislatures are required to put forward new plans um, for both congressional uh, districts as well as state legislative districts. And so that process has been taking place. Um, and as you would expect, there has been litigation that has arisen out of that redistricting process. Um, and so one case in particular that I want to highlight, because I think it's um, emblematic of, of a lot of others, is Merrill versus Milligan, which is a case that arose out of Alabama's um, redistricting efforts. And there in Mer- Merrill v. Milligan, um, the court used the shadow docket to stay a three-judge district court decision that had ordered the state of Alabama to draw a new map. Um, because they determined that the map that was adopted by the Alabama state legislature constituted a uh, significant racial gerrymander. And so um, right now, the court, the Supreme Court has said, we are out of the business of looking at claims about partisan gerrymandering. That was in a 2019 case. But in theory, they are still in the business of looking at racial gerrymandering claims, which arise out of the Voting Rights Act. It's one of the few things that they've left remaining out of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so the court, this term, took to the shadow docket to put a stay in place, which means that Alabama's map, um, which racially gerrymandered, racially map. gerrymandered yeah. map, um, will be in effect for the 2022 cycle. Because it was on the shadow docket, we don't know why the court There's decided to literally put that no explanation place. of any kind. Right. There are concurring opinions. There are dissenting opinions that accompanied the order, um, but nobody spoke for the court. We don't know. Um, it, the guess is that they determined that it is too close to the election to be redrawing maps. That seems like a convenient excuse because we've seen state Supreme Courts much later in the sure, process. Yeah, slapping yes, down maps here for and there. sure. Um, And it's also sent waves to lower district courts. They've taken notice of this fact. So um, you can't even say that it's limited uh, shadow duck reach because they're just dealing with things that pop up. Um, A district court in Georgia, for example, saw what happened in Merrill v. Milligan and said, "Okay, well, we're too close to the election, so we're not going to get involved either. Um, And it really opened the door for states to put in place maps that are significant racial gerrymanders. 
going forward, at least into the 2022 cycle. And so um, what's going to end up happening is the court has taken this case up for next term. Um, so there will be briefing, oral argument, the traditional process, but that map is going to be in place for the 2022 cycle. Um, so it's going to do some real harm. And I will note... It's also hard to imagine that 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 the eventual final decision in that case is going to be anything other than devastating. Yeah. So a lot of voting rights experts, um, myself included, think that really the court's going to take the opportunity to deliver one more blow to the Voting Rights Act. And um, we did get a dissent from just Chief Justice Roberts in this particular decision, um, which is surprising, to be honest, because that man does not love the Voting Rights Act. He takes every opportunity to go after it. And in fact, I would expect he's going to write the eventual decision in this case. He very well could be. He's been very active in terms of writing on the Voting Rights Act, but it was even too far for him. That just speaks to how far this court has moved when it comes to a number of things, but particularly election law. Do you think his objection, though, was to how the court decided or to deciding this way at this time? Um, it, it's the latter, right? Yeah, so it's a his, process foul. Yeah, his dissenting opinion was that he thinks that the court should look at this, um, but not use the shadow docket to put a stay in place, because given the current state of the law, um, it was within the court's right to ask for it to be redrawn. That's kind of just the process that we've been seeing. And so um, you're absolutely right. It was a process objection there. All right. As terrifying <laughs> as uh, this conversation is, we are going to look briefly at the Supreme Court's upcoming term. Uh, one one exciting note, and again, let's take the highlights where we can get them. One exciting note is that Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson now has justice before her name. She is officially on the Supreme Court, and we very much look forward uh, to her contribution uh, to the court starting this upcoming term. That said, there are some really scary cases on the horizon. Uh, Lindsay, the court recently announced that it's going to be taking up a case about the independent state legislature theory. Here's a term that none of us wanted to become familiar with, but here we go. Before we get to the case, why is this so concerning? Yeah, so this theory, which is relatively novel, um, used to be considered kind of a fringe opinion. I think it still is. Uh, you know, it, it's to be determined. So um, it was cited in Bush v. Gore and by Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time, um, and then kind of sat idle for about 20 years and has been recently picked back up by the conservatives on the court. And essentially what this theory puts forward is um, that Based on the way that the Constitution is written, um, state legislatures' decisions about how elections are conducted, even with federal elections, should not be constrained by state constitutions or state courts. Um, it says that the power rests within state legislatures, and so it's really not within state courts' ability to weigh in there, and that state constitutional protections are really not applicable when it comes to the conduct are of Are you saying election. it would, essentially then, state legislatures would have carte blanche 
power to run their elections however they want or to that, i mean that is one um it's that's, a, the ex- that's the concern that is the concern it is still a pretty novel theory um so we're still learning what people think it means but in this reality. is in the wake of 2020 it's in the yeah as we're seeing proponents of the big lie try and win office absolutely right but it's uh, it's one other thing that it's in the wake of is this move towards state courts and state constitutions in particular to do the job that the federal courts are failing to do and that congress is failing to do um many states have in their constitution stronger language when it comes to the right to vote more explicit language um, and state courts have been willing to enforce those provisions. And so what you're seeing is the court decide that state legislatures are really the center of gravity when it comes to election law and election administration. And they're, they're concentrating power in that one body. Um, and it's not a coincidence that they're also allowing that same body to pick its own voters, um, and to gerrymander their districts. And so there's a real stronghold over state legislatures by conservatives in many states that is out of step with the actual makeup of the state. Um, and so I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing such a, a hyper concentration of power in that particular body. We're going to be discussing this case at length um, next term. But for folks who are new to this, can you just explain, give us the name of the case, explain what the, the specifics are? Yeah, so the case is Moore v. Harper, um, and the courts are going to be looking at a North Carolina Supreme Court decision that held that the North Carolina state constitution prohibits extreme partisan gerrymanders. So the federal, the U.S. Supreme Court um, has decided that they are not in the business of looking at such a gerrymander. That's in a case called Rucho v. Common Cause out of 2019. Um, but the North Carolina Supreme Court said, Okay, we'll use our state constitution to protect the, um, our voters from such a miscarriage of justice. Um, and so what is going to be decided is if they even have the ability and power to do that. Um, or if the North Carolina state legislature gets to decide basically everything about the way that elections are conducted in North Carolina, including how they draw their maps. I mean, this is scary. You're talking about what could potentially be a really devastating blow to state court power. Yeah. And and combined with the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, um, it really could potentially rewrite all of election law as we know it. Um, I shouldn't say all. A lot of election law as we know it next term. It's also, I think, impossible to have this conversation and not look ahead to 2024, right? Right now, the, the January 6th Select Committee is holding public hearings about the ongoing and acute threat to our democracy. There is a lot of concern about election subversion, and this does not seem helpful. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is very much up in the air. Um, Experts disagree about the extent to which this would impact, for example, presidential electors. Um, And part of that is because it's a relatively unexplored theory until now. But it it is a backdrop that is certainly concerning when we look forward to um, the way that things are going. And in particular, the reasons that people are trying to revive this doctrine, or I shouldn't say doctrine, um, this this theory. And it should concern us all about the direction that things are heading, particularly before the court. So I I said it before, I'll say it again. We, We are going to be discussing this case 
that length. Um, so this is just the first reference to it, but stay tuned. We'll be doing standalone episodes on this case uh, when it's taken up this fall. Uh, Lindsay, there's one other case I want to make sure that we touch upon, um, again, heading into next term, and that is a very high-profile case about affirmative action. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so that is Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College. Um, they are going to be revisiting a 2003 opinion um, actually written by Justice O'Connor, um, a, a conservative on the court, in which, in that case, a 5-4 court held that the equal protection clause um, doesn't prohibit a very narrow use of race in the higher education admissions process. They are going to be taking up that question directly and looking at Harvard's admissions policy, which includes what the First uh, Circuit concluded was a narrowly tailored use of race in their admissions process. It is a concerning reason for a number of reasons, um, but it seems that the court is really laser focused on race and and the use of race um, in the law in the next term. And so um, this is certainly first and foremost in a lot of people's minds because affirmative action has been settled law for a while. Um, I should say that Justice O'Connor, in her opinion in 2003, said that, you know, we're not going to do this forever. We expect that in 25 years that there will no longer be a need for affirmative action in um, in these particular contexts. And so they're a little bit ahead of that timeline, um, not a ton. And it is not surprising that this court has decided to take this up um, and say, you know what, we're done. Um, the This court has been pretty consistent in saying that to look at race is essentially problematic in their mind. Um, we are living in a post-racial society, Jenny. Yeah. So it's fine. Again, Everything's fine. They are living in their own version of history. Yeah. And they are living in their own version of the present. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that similarity, though, between these two cases. Yeah, you know, it, between the Voting Rights Act, between yeah. um, Students for Fair Admissions, there there are a number of cases that the court is going to be looking at next term that really focus in. They, um, they certainly had a lot of decisions that will have an impact um, when it comes to many different um, aspects of the way that race interacts with the law this term, but next term they're being explicit yeah, about it. They're taking it head on. Yeah. Um, and it, it's highly unlikely that these cases are going to come out in a. It's not looking great. Um, even the, the folks that people consider to be more moderate within the yeah. conservative supermajority have been very hostile, um, particularly to affirmative action policies. So I want to bring Christopher and Evan back in here. Uh, again, this has just been a super downer episode. Um, but I, I think that is uh, just a reflection of, of this court and the times that we're living in. So given these cases that we discussed today and given the other cases that we have discussed uh, on earlier episodes, can I ask the three of you just for kind of broad takeaways from this term, trends, things that caught your attention beyond the specifics uh, of any one case. Christopher, can I start with you? Sure. I would say, you know, obviously this is the first full term in which the 6-3 um, supermajority has been able to sort of exercise its power and do what it would like. And it's demonstrated that it has 
no modesty. Um, it's not taking things slow. It is not an incrementalist court. It is going to do um, what it wants to do. Um, I think the thing that remains to be seen is how the public long-term responds and whether the court is at all responsive to that response. Um, you know, it's people like to say that the court has no money. It has no army. All it has is its reputation. Um, and Which is... In the gutter. Yeah. In the toilet. It is tanking um, it right is, now. It is not good. Um but, but for like a, a you know a small minority of the country, which is very happy with what this court is doing, I think the the large majority of folks are are um, dismayed to say the least. So you know the question is: Are is there lack of modesty um, going to continue, or is there going to be enough of a public pushback um, to really sort of this was their big hurrah, and now they're going to settle into being an actual like court instead of just a a, a, a political um, institution. Um, I have my doubts about that. Um, uh, I think those are very healthy doubts. And, you know, I think that in addition to sort of like pursuing um, a lot of the court reforms that we talk about uh, all the time, I think there, there sort of needs to be a reckoning of, you know, what is our expectation of what this court does and what other mechanisms are there to achieve our policy ends? I think that progressives has for a long time thought far too highly of this court um, and expected it to protect rights when it really, I mean, historically even has not actually other than in, you know, a few sort of really high profile ways um, protected it um, and really demanding that, you know, Congress does its job because a lot of these bad decisions, Congress can fix them. Um, it's a matter of political will, political will. Absolutely. Um, and putting the pressure on them because they're at least, you know, ostensibly answerable to um, the populace when the, the court itself is not. I, I am really interested in seeing what the political movement is uh, amongst the general population, because I think voters are very familiar with protesting Congress. Um, it's unusual to protest the court. I mean, we, we see protests outside the court on, a, I would say, on a fairly regular basis, but they tend to be kind of pop-up protests that aren't long-term. And this is a, this is going to be an experiment of whether the public can maintain outrage uh, against the Supreme Court, including voicing that come election time. Um, ACS says all the time that courts matter and how you vote is absolutely a reflection of your views on the court. Um, so we'll be, time will tell, but I think that's a very, very valid point. Uh, Lindsay and Evan, what are your big takeaways here? Um, building on that, I will say one thing that really stuck out to me was that all three justices who found themselves in the dissent most often, the, the three liberal justices, each took the opportunity to raise the court's legitimacy um, when responding to opinions, which which stuck out to me. Um, and you also saw justices, you could clearly read the frustration. I mean, at one point, Justice Sotomayor included a photo in her dissent to... to um, demonstrate just how aggressively the majority was manipulating the facts in that case. And so 
absolutely it was a trend that the court kind of cherry picked history and in instituting all these different history and tradition tests that we saw across a number of places. But there was also just a disregard of the underlying facts um, to achieve the aims that they were aiming for. And so that really stuck out to me um, as an unusual um, when it comes to this particular term. Yeah, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. And to end on a slightly more hopeful note, which I'm, I'm really trying hard to think of anything, I think this is a moment that the mask has kind of fallen off, right? We see this court for what it is. And it purported to be, you know, oh, we're just, you know, Nine lawgivers in robes were not political in any way. And now we know definitively that that is not the case. And we also know what, you know, people like us have known for a long time, but maybe the general public hasn't, namely that originalism as a constitutional theory is intellectually and morally bankrupt, that textualism is great when it suits us and not so great when it doesn't. And I think for years, progressives have been sort of playing by the rules that the conservatives have set, right? We have, we've, you know, we've sort of been like, I always think back to uh, Justice Stevens in Heller. He, in his dissent, created this incredible originalist case for why the Second Amendment should, you know, be read to allow gun regulations. And he sincerely thought that he would get uh, Justice Scalia's vote. And he didn't. And we have continually been playing by their rules. And now is the time to think expansively, to think creatively, to create a vision of what the Constitution, what our legal culture, what statutory interpretation should look like going forward to protect the great number of us from the whims of this conservative supermajority. I like ending on that note because it's really an invitation to talk about Supreme Court reform, which is my favorite topic, including on this podcast. And so I always encourage listeners to go back and check out our episodes about Supreme Court reform and to engage in that conversation. Uh, and I like your point, Evan, of the deference that is given to the court it's a deference that needs to be earned. Yes. And right now it's just, they don't deserve our deference. Um, so we will be talking more about this because all of these decisions that we talked about today are going to have sweeping consequences on our daily lives. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, Lindsay, Christopher, and Evan. It was fun to see you all yes. in our office. <laughs> A delight. Uh, we'll do this more often. We exist in physical space. <laughs> Who knew? And thank you so much to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And just a reminder that our most recent two episodes and our next episode will also debrief uh, Supreme Court decisions from this term. So make sure to check those out. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. <laughs> <laughs>